Okay, so we're ready. Where is my? Okay, there we are. So I think I think we're ready. So we will. I think we just we don't really have an objective with this particular podcast. We just want to see you, hear from you, and have a riff around what's going on with NFTs. And I think Josh is mainly keen. He said to to hear how your views have evolved on uh, NFTs. Let me just hide my other apps. Um, and riff a little bit on what Dirk was telling me yesterday because I, f- I find that quite interesting the whole behind yeah. the scenes auction stuff mm-hmm. um, and whether the market is going to come back and a little bit of anyway we'll, we'll flow we'll flow do you want to introduce or should I Josh Yo, you go ahead you know more about you know more you know Simon better than me I like him better than you like him though okay <laughs> we can fight over it all right. So, hello and welcome to another edition of the Blind Spot podcast. I'm joined as usual by John Seth. Say hello. Yo. Hello. And for those who don't know me, I'm Isabella Kaminska. Um, and today we've got a really special show. We've got Simon Denny, the artist, joining us. He is, um, I think, best known. I mean, I- I've heard you described as like the one of the original digital artists. If that, if, if, does that. Does that does that resonate, Simon? Would you call yourself? Uh, sure. A... I mean, I'll, I'll take what I can get. But it's, uh, I, um, yeah, I always say that I uh, have made art about uh, stories that technologists tell us about the world. That's that's what I like to say. And I do things in museums and galleries, but I also do things online and NFTs and crypto art as well. Simon's behind behind a, a whole slew of really fascinating exhibitions. Um, one of the most, the one that I personally saw was the one at the Serpentine, which must have been like, that was when? 2015, I was going to say 2016, pre like the end of the world with Brexit and Trump. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was the end of the world? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there is before 2016 and then there is post 2016. That's how I. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's actually not wrong. That's not um, so it was pre-2016, before the world changed, let's put it politely. Um, before the narrative right? Like, uh, before Brits think the world changed. Yeah. But then also, you, you've done some amazing exhibitions in, like, Tasmania, was it? Yeah, I've done things in Tasmania at this uh, place called the Museum of Old and New Art, which is like a big private foundation, and, and uh, this guy's... Uh, in the in this place, which was founded by this incredible um, algorithmic gambling uh, uh, kind of entrepreneur, um, which is a very interesting space. So I've done stuff there. I've done things for the Venice Biennale. Uh, I've represented New Zealand there. Um, I have done things at MoMA in New York, uh, MoMA PS1. I did a, a survey show there. And um, in LA, I did something at the Hammer Museum and, uh, I don't know, various various different things. I was just in New Zealand where I was born, where I, uh, I opened an exhibition uh, just a couple of weeks ago as well. So always always doing exhibition-y things. Oh, so I, but do you qualify as a New Zealand um, citizen or are you... Are you... Oh, yes. I'm a New wow. Zealand citizen, permanent residence in Germany. That's my, have you built, that's my have you built a bunker... As a piece of your art, Simon. So many bunkers, uh, you know. It's uh, you know you trip over them uh, in New Zealand. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very easy to find a bunker in New Zealand. No, I haven't. I haven't built a bunker, but I did do an exhibition about Peter Thiel um, and his supposed bunker building in Queenstown, um, and uh, that was uh, that was an interesting uh, narrative uh, to work with as well. I did a whole kind of 
political map of uh, potential influences and uh, and and stories that um, Peter was adjacent to, and I made kind of board game uh, interpretations of those, and um, and then Peter actually came and saw it, uh, which was really interesting, um, and uh, that struck up a little dialogue. So. Yeah, the, the the bunker narrative is a is one that a lot of people see uh, New Zealand close to. I also did a big show about Kim.com um, many years ago, the founder of Mega Upload, who also lives in New Zealand. Um, and Mega and Porn. These Mega. No porn. one remembers that. No one remembers that. Yeah, there were so many megas. It was a mega operation, and it still is a mega operation. He's also like. A, is it really? Yeah, he's like a mega narrative. He's he's you know been trying to be extradited by the U.S. for ten years, and still he's in New Zealand making businesses. So and making a lot of noise on Twitter. And um, yeah, so I did an exhibition where I visualized all of uh, the list of things that the U.S. courts wanted to uh, confiscate off him uh, at the beginning of the trial. So uh, there was like a, a list of like 150 items. And uh, yeah, half of them were bank accounts. And then it was like a bunch of cars and a bunch of art. And I kind of tried to pull in dummies for all of those items. So to try and claim that I was showing his personal collection. Uh, and I kind of thought of it as the US courts uh, curating his collection. That was kind of what I, <laughs> what I claimed it was, yeah. I That's love that. That's pretty cool. Um, basically, which is a long way of saying that Simon's like a legitimate artist, not just like uh, one of these uh, people at Hyde Park that you see. <laughs> Although you do occasionally go to the Serpentine, but that's a different park. Um, part of the park. It's a different park. Anyway. Um, but I think uh, we're going to be talking about NFTs um, for the, for the uh, I guess, majority of this podcast. But before we get to NFTs, um, what's the art market like these days? It's all gone inflationary, Simon. And uh, I keep hearing yeah. that art's an alternative asset. So what's your view on that? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I should qualify my position I speak from before I uh, make any claims. But like, uh, you know, I'm an, I'm an artist. I am some a tiny little collector, more of NFTs than, than uh, physical art. Um, uh, but uh, so I... I only know anecdotally from my position how peers are doing, how galleries that I work with are doing, et cetera. And it's actually very difficult to get um, data from the primary market because uh, people, it's kind of an, it's hard. Yeah, there's not a lot of transparency in the in the contemporary art um, sales environment. So a lot goes on vibes and everybody likes to project uh, very positive vibes. So even if things are going really badly, mostly people say things are going great. Um, so I know what's happening in my own books and my own studio, um, but there's no blockchain, for example, to read what sold for when, by whom, to whom, you know. And I think that's one of the great contrasts between working, you know, between the kind of normal contemporary art world uh, that I kind of grew up in and the NFT world is that uh, there's there's at least a kind of transactional uh, transparency there where you can see volume and it's very easy to kind of uh, make statistics of of, of how things are going. Whereas in art, you know, you have to rely on what people tell you, you know, because it's all very, very quiet. Um, so so I'm a, are doing it's all going great. Uh, who knows? I'm yeah. a collector. I'm a collector myself. But just to, oh, you brought, that's where you went. You went to get a beanie, baby. I want to, I want to go get my beanie. And this one is an acrylic box. Is that box. because of the merge? Is, is that like an ETH merge reference? Uh, no, this is just, this is a panda. It's a picking yeah. the panda. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
But have you seen Just this meme where it's like a black bear, a white bear, they come together, it's ETH one, ETH two, it's the merge. ETH merge right panda. here. ETH merge. Yeah, exactly. Making the ETH merge panda. Yeah, I, exactly. uh, I, I, so you, you are still buying NFTs? Is that, is that what I'm I am, because I'm, I'm, you know, there's this joke, right, in, in NFTs where people say, like, if you're really terrible at investing, that you're in it for the art. And unfortunately, I'm actually in it for the art. So I do still buy NFTs yeah. because I'm really interested in what they're, doing artistically you know they're cheaper than buying other uh, art for me um but yeah it's possibly uh as, as an investment um it's it's hard to it's hard to get at the moment do you do you, <clears throat> do you think do you think nfts have staying power or are you uh be, because i i don't but right. josh you you, you claim your tell simon your famous you know claim to fame regarding nfts well, NFTs. I'm a, I'm the but for inventor, Simon of NFTs. Interesting. <laughs> Without he, NFTs, he has allegedly NF some substance to this claim. Oh, there is NFTs uh, flow out of my old uh, show, Bitcoin Uncensored. Uh, yeah. With the rare Pepe's. Oh well, so the rare, there... the rare, yeah, the rare Pepe's were a community that was a community of my listeners, yes. basically, and oh, uh, it was the. The, the Bitcoin Uncensored ethos that developed this. And then from there, the rest of the NFT world. But didn't oh, the rare Pepe <laughs> get appropriated by the Nazis? No, that was, that's, no. <laughs> that's another is... parallel track of like symbolism. But the rare Pepe as a kind of initial NFT kind of uh, foray into the, into the, into the form, right? Before EFC721, like uh, that, that was like the, one of, on, on there's various different timelines of how NFT supposedly developed, and on many timelines, the um, the rip epic is one of the first, right? So it uh, it really is. And then before that, I mean, there was spells of Genesis, but again, that was like counterparty. So like the reason that they picked counterparty again was because of the show. So the NFTs originated on Bitcoin, and in large part because we were, uh, you know, because of Bitcoin uncensored. So yeah. without without Bitcoin uncensored. You don't end up with the Repepes, which are the ones that get uh, Union Square Ventures attention. Yeah. And without Union Square Ventures attention, you don't have CryptoKitties. Without CryptoKitties, you don't have CryptoPunks and everything else. So, Absolutely. Uh, so I, I like I like to say I'm the but for inventor, <laughs> but for Bitcoin Uncensored, we wouldn't be in this world. Is that? <laughs> but you're not no, technically no, the Satoshi, the Satoshi of. Um... Well, there is there's there's no Satoshi necessarily. I like. It's it's more of a I'm I'm the ideator, and then and then other people are the executors. But even the rare Pepe's were a group of like four or five guys. Yeah, and you know, crypto case. It's interesting you should mention that because I uh, cards on the table. I collaborated on my kind of most recent um, uh, NFT kind of uh, uh, big foray with uh, this artist Gilles Tadowski who did the drawings of the cats. So we did a collaborative piece. <laughs> Uh, which was called Dotcom Seance, which was trying to uh, bring back Web One companies that had crashed and uh, and reinject them into uh, Web Three. Um, and uh, the way we did that was we algorithmically <laughs> generated some uh, logos based on descriptions of such companies as CashWars.com or uh, Funbug.com, uh, things that flamed out in two thousand one. And then from the kind of AI-generated logos, from the text descriptions that the, uh, the AI spit out, Gilay, the CryptoKitties uh, guy, he then chose one and also did like a final finished beautiful piece. And we sold all those as assets 
uh, as resurrections of uh, of those Web1 companies. So we also sold um, ENS domains along with them. Uh, so when you bought an asset, you also then had a subdomain, the ENS domain, and people are then kind of building on top of that as a, as a platform. So there was mm. a, a project to build Funbug again, but in Web3, for example. Um, and I'm doing a presentation in London, uh, which is like a giant in, in Soho, uh, where all of those are flying around on streams, actually coming up soon. Isabella, if you're there uh, in October, yeah. But yeah, anyway, the, um, this Crypto Kitty Seance is brilliant. I love that idea. <laughs> and there was a Pets.com one, wasn't there? I I I, I just love. I love, I love yeah. it. I love the idea of like you know the concept is brilliant. But that that's what Simon does. He comes up with really cool concepts, so I like it. <laughs> I am I am sort of in and out during October. I um. So, because this is what I wanted to ask you, Simon, because I think yeah. Blind Spot is about <clears throat> bridging different sort of communities and helping them, you know, understand a little bit more about areas they don't necessarily understand about. Um, and I think in finance, apart from collectors who, you know, but you've got to made it, you have to have made it already, like to be a collector. Um, but those of us who haven't quite made it, <laughs> can you explain to us what kind that. of. <laughs> can you explain to us like how does the art season work like because october is a big like that is that considered like the start of the season or the end like how does it work well in london it very much is because there's uh, i mean art fairs have been a focus of um of art sales and the arts community where kind of galleries that represent artists will come and show you know a booth full of it's like a trade fair a booth full of uh new work uh some some also secondary work sales um in kind of uh, centralized places. Basel's a big one that happens in June, but in uh, in London it's freeze uh, and that happens in October. And so there's a big focus on activity in London uh, during uh, during October because that's when a lot of international visitors uh, with the right attention, money and community come to look at art. And um, so I think, yeah, one can definitely say that. And there's a few moments like that which are kind of regional and these galleries sort of like hop around the world and do these presentations in these cities and presumably similar uh, people follow them. Um, uh, so yeah, October's uh, uh, one of those moments, and this is why there's lots happening, including this dot-com uh, sounds explosion. Yeah. Excellent. Well, someone we both know was telling me that, like, in terms of NFT valuations, for example, or art valuations in general, like this summer is a is a a really kind of bad period to try and test the water because there's not as much activity therefore to really get an understanding of the price you have to wait until october do you think that's that's accurate uh yeah that could be the case you know again like i have to qualify my claims from the perspective of somebody who's not primarily interested in collecting but more interested in making and kind of curating and bringing meaning together um but but yeah, that sounds plausible, and uh, and it, it follows this rhythm um, as well. I mean, September generally the, the summer is off. You know, July, August, uh, people uh, who are interested in these things are in other places doing other things. And uh, September in New York comes yeah. back with like a slew of new shows. And October in London, I think, is one of those things. So it makes sense that the market will follow that. So is the freeze this year going to be? I mean, you're not, you're not probably the person to to ask. We should ask someone else, but. Um, but I guess NFTs are now a big part of that. So I I, I heard that like last freeze already had a, a an NFT presence, but this this year it's probably going to be significantly bigger. So NFTs are now part of the fabric. 
Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, and I mean, I know a little bit more about Basel, which is like the like the European fair, which is a, a similar stature, right? let's say, to Freeze. And they do uh, a very prominent fair in the US as well, in Miami, uh, in the beginning of um, December. And uh, there was a really significant presence of NFT action and crypto action, particularly in Miami because of the crossover with the community in Miami, which is very crypto friendly, um, where you had Art Basel, you had um, a, a Tezos presence in Art Basel officially, but then you had like a thousand other events around the same time as the fair in the city, which uh, was very, very visible. And I think that will happen again this year, obviously with a slightly more bearish market at the moment, who knows what happens by uh, the end of November, beginning of December, but um, you'd imagine that would be a little bit less in volume. But um, I think uh, there's it's sort of started something where people kind of who are into NFT also go to Basel, which is one way in the community of saying you're heading down to Miami at the beginning of uh, December um, uh, to go to NFT events, which don't even necessarily touch the, the main Art Basel fair, which is also a really interesting thing. Although last year, kind of, I mean, I would say Art Basel was replete with Board Ape Yacht Club last year, just filled with it. Yeah, but the fair itself not, right? That's that's the crazy yeah, thing. That's like, true. The, like the walled garden of the fair where you have to pay, you know, whatever it is, 50K to have a booth and you have to apply with a program, da, da, da. Like that was the, the normal are fair you, bar. This are you, kind of like one, um, one Tesla's presentation, but then all sorts of collateral events that were not actually officially associated with it were yeah. know, Board Apes to hell, yeah. Are you down here for Art Basel, Simon? I will be coming, yeah, and I'll be oh. doing a presentation also at Art Basel, and uh, and and also it'll have an NFT tie-in. So, uh, Isabel, yeah. I will go see that on your behalf. I won't yeah. say hi to Simon though, because I don't like him. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. It's mutual. Well, yeah. you've got you're very busy then, because you have to do you have to do that boating story as well. So you, I went, I, when I met with them, they're good. Th that'll be a great story. I think we're gonna have some fun with that. We yeah, we met I, a. I I um. I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but I'm going to say anyway. I, I was commissioned to do a piece for Boat International. It'll be coming oh, wow. out in October um, because they were interested to see like what's happening with super yachts and NFTs. And, and so I did a big sort of thing. And I spoke to one of the first yacht brokers who's dealing in, in amongst other things, uh, these yacht, yacht NFTs, which to me, like... Is this Go after the, um, the 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 three uh, three arrows uh, boat fiasco? Is this is this connected to that? Is no, this no, no. This is connected with a real yacht broker who I, I went there and I, I I kind of checked it out. I sniffed what was going on. So uh, what's going on is it's a yacht broker. It's the it's one of the biggest yacht brokers in the world. Uh, the guy who owns it lives right down the road from me. Uh, and well, I guess he used to own it because they said they were just bought out. But one of the side projects that he's doing. Is with this kid down here he's launching these uh web3 nft yachts that you can buy and the story cool. is that they weren't selling because you know they're fake yachts <laughs> and then and then the board the board ape yacht club guys figured found out about it in their chat and then went ape wild buying tons of them and so now now they're actually a thing but that presents a problem because they they aren't really a thing. So now they have to actually like build the thing. Oh, that's so interesting. Because it's I mean, you funny. know about this three AC uh, narrative. I, so three arrow capital, one of the biggest stories in crypto in the last six months, and and maybe a harbinger of of the of the crash, right? Maybe they caused the crash. You know, there's all the speculation, right? But they were one of the one of the core narratives around um, around them was that they had purchased a very expensive luxury boat. 
and had that paid off eighty percent of it. And then they have kind of like you know they had to kind of uh, they didn't finish it and now it's on the market moored somewhere. Um, and it's sort of a symbolic uh, thing for for the crash as well. Yeah. The important thing that, to note is that twenty percent of one of the world's biggest yachts is more money than almost anyone st still has. <laughs> uh, Sam, can we talk about your art? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, love, I, love to talk about it. I want to know why why you're freaking obsessed with Ethereum. What's going on there? <laughs> Well, it's uh, obviously the most uh, decentralized uh, blockchain out there, you know, uh, after Bitcoin, obviously. Uh, but no, I mean, it's that's a very good question, but it's it's a simple answer because I'm interested in stories. You know, I'm interested in ways that the world gets explained by technologists. And uh, when kind of Bitcoin came along, I was fascinated by stories that accompanied people that were enthusiastic about Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, political stories, uh, community stories, uh, financial stories. And then I think Ethereum presented like a major one in terms of, uh, you know, a new operating system to have a decentralized planet and, you know, uh, something you could build, uh, you know, a, you know, post, uh, I guess, uh, post nation state infrastructure on with its own money system, like all of these stories I was really compelled by. And Ethereum was the most visible one when I started making out about it, uh, 15, 16. And, um, and they also had the kind of, in some ways, the biggest claims. And um, the other reason is because I'm in Berlin and Berlin has the Ethereum Foundation here. So you meet people who are involved in the project uh, quite frequently. And, um, and I think Vitalik is a very interesting, again, in terms of storytellers, I think he's a very interesting uh, figure in terms of like, a, I mean, he's not the, the leader of the pack, obviously. He's a co-founder of something which is, you know, relatively decentralized, so he has no power as such, but the power that he has is somehow rhetorical power through Twitter. So all of those reasons make it very interesting for me. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that does make sense. I actually, uh, I remember when Ethereum was announced, I was in Miami in the room with Vitalik announcing it. So like, I, yeah. I it's been, I've been, I've been there. And, and before that, like I knew about, uh, you know the the group working on it and such so it's it is an interesting story if, if that's what you're into i very much remember when that, that, that page when with the ticking time like the you know the countdown for like when they were gonna they pre-mined it and you had to years, buy it and i was later. like that's never gonna work <laughs> it's a bit like work. a bit like when i went to to, to <laughs> university with Coldplay and where i'd go to their um to their shows and i mean i'm never gonna make it <laughs> <laughs> so you're a Don't to me. <laughs> it's you know it's different isabella like you might have made a lot of money but the the fact that they're the merge is happening the merge is a reset so it is an admission that it did not work so you were right Do you think that's yeah i mean why why is moving from proof of interesting proof of theory tell us yeah exactly well, why is there proof, proof that it failed why is it not an evolution of the network well, it's 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 essentially like they're taking a snapshot of the network and they're uh, they're moving forward with it. So, like, it is not there's there's a lot of problems with this. Number one, uh, the way that the the vote was done. So they generally in Bitcoin, one of the things that they really try to do is do everything in like a very decentralized way. With Ethereum, they had people stake ETH to vote uh, on whether they were going to merge. They didn't have enough staked ETH, so then all of a sudden. One day, one person, probably the foundation, or very possibly the foundation, staked enough ETH to make sure that the merge was going to happen. So, like, it wasn't in any way a decentralized vote. Um, there wasn't a, 
it, it's very much a foundation directed motion. It's uh, it's very you know Vitalik has pushed it. A number of people really like it's it's just not it's just not in any way what Bitcoin is. It's very different. And a, I think roaming, couldn't you make claims about like the way that developers have influence and and big holders and big miners have influence over like the network and and and, and Bitcoin? And that's a different thing, but presumably one that, could make a claim that if you have a huge investment in a mining rig or you're a core developer in the in the Bitcoin system, you also have far mm -hmm. more influence over the direction of the project than like just a small holder, for example. Yeah, so you could you could try to make that claim. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why why it's not true. So uh, you know, and 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 here's here's the thing. Like, there's a lot of good examples. So, for example, in Bitcoin, and and I, I, not that we're like a Bitcoin pitch show. So I, I guess, uh, but I, I do find this stuff interesting. So, mm. uh, Bitcoin, for example, a few years ago, there was this proposal. This is why we end up with Craig Wright, right? Mm -hmm. We had this proposal to increase the block size, and the community was not having it. And uh, the corporations in Bitcoin, the big holders really wanted it. And the miners really wanted it, too, because they would mm. make more money. Mm -hmm. The holders wouldn't have it. So what we had was this uh, thing called Josh is a Bitcoin Maxi. <laughs> Actually, I am the first Bitcoin Maxi, Isabella. Genre-defining position there. And, well, Vit Vitalik wrote that article about Bitcoin maximalism after having an argument with me and Chris uh, on, like, in Skype. And so like yeah, we've, yeah. yeah, so this is, this is where the word actually comes from, <laughs> but, uh, but the, so, so what happened is, uh, as, as that happened, as the big holders were pushing for a greater sized, uh, block chain, there was kind of this, uh, fight between the, you know, general holders, the node operators and everybody else. And we had UASF which was the node operators basically saying they were going to force a chain split if the rest of the network didn't go so, a certain way. So like it was it was literally a vote without a vote. There was no community vote. There was nothing proposed. It was just literally the node operators signaled that they were going to refuse to allow a certain type of upgrade. And so what ended up was a very pragmatic sort of uh, negotiated solution between the entire community wherein we sort of hacked a solution together that would increase the block size if you you know constructed transactions in a certain way by mm -hmm. uh, fixing by fixing um, transaction malleability and adding in segregated witness without having to require a hard fork so that's your answer there's a lot there's actually a lot of the merges fake news <laughs> I I guess I'm not supposed to read the chirons but <laughs> they're about me. So that's, but that's why I would say that Bitcoin and, and ETH are very different in that way. I'm just For going sure. back to my CNBC producer days, but interesting. Well, it's CNBC, the producers or the, the, the guy on, on screen sitting there like reading the Chirons at the bottom. He's like, oh, that's quite the Chiron. <laughs> <laughs> We've misspelled that there. Okay. Yeah. Anyhow, but I, I think it's interesting for me, Simon, when I look at your work, because like you, your your work has been very ETH focused. And on like the other side, we have in Bitcoin, we have like people like Crypto Graffiti who make, you know, very specifically Bitcoin art. Um, and I always appreciated your art. Like I, I enjoyed uh, the Crypto Kitty Miner. I thought that was very fucking clever. Yeah. Oh, now we're demonetized. Yeah, it's. <laughs> It, uh, it's a it's a it's a funny thing. I mean, yeah. The other reason why I think I'm interested in ETH is because actually, to come back to maybe the core prompt for this conversation, it has the biggest uh, NFT community on it, and also the most variety in NFT and most 
yeah, I can say like most NFT art that I'm interested in uses ETH as a chain. So I guess that's another that's another reason why I've been rather ETH focused in my cultural attention. You know, but I, I do think it's a, the, the the level of artists that uh, have released NFTs has been kind of amazing to me. Like, um, you know, just the, the I don't know. I mean, who's who's the biggest one? The the, the shark dude. The frozen shark dude. Oh, Jimmy Hurst. Yeah, I actually thought the Colin Hurst. Was good. Yeah, I thought that was Hurst a did it. Yeah, that wasn't so, the place. So. I want. I mean, if you if we're talking about the history, the shark like, guy. I um, because obviously I think, regardless of like the heritage of who made the first whatever, but isn't isn't like people fundamentally the key thing that created the, or at least brought normies art normies into the world of nfts i mean yeah there... i mean i think it's worth making that distinction because it's i mean it was a huge financial signal to uh to the art world that this was to be taken seriously right and it was in collusion with the auction houses to some degree who knows what really happened maybe you got that story uh from people who are closer to uh the um the auction houses themselves um but well, I, learned, about... I, learned, I learned about this concept of um uh committed bids or like unrevocable bids um, in the auction, which I which I thought was fascinating in its own right. But we'll have yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll have a dedicated podcast uh, with uh, with the person who knows all about this soon. But yeah, yes. so this idea of irrevocable bids um, yeah. uh, comes out of the heritage of the two thousand eight uh, crisis when the auction houses were giving guarantees to a lot of like artists at auction, which were being um, essentially uh, backstopped by the banking industry. And then when 2008 happened, they found themselves in a massive problem um, having over, or as Tom Cruise might say, uh, having written checks, their bodies. Uh, what was what's the phrase? Top Gun phrase? Writing checks, their bodies. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> And um, and then there was like a period of no one was giving guarantees. And then essentially they came out with this new system of third party guarantees, which was um, they essentially all the kind of things that you suspect are going on at auctions are still going on at auctions. But then they just they just make it transparent and they say that, you know, there's a irrevocable bid from X, Y or Z who's going to underpin the basically that's right. how i understood it however isabella i will say I, i'm going to assert hot take i don't think that nfts have ever entered normie space at least not yet well they're certainly a lot more normified after that big financial signal i think that made of splashes a bunch of papers i got questions that i never had before because i i would i will say that i have been adjacent to uh you know art production about uh about blockchains and using blockchain as a medium uh, you know, a long time before the people signal and a long time before people started producing things, you know, again, like first is, is not necessarily the most important thing. And, and, and uh, it's not how it's not, it's not who uh, were at first is who were at best often uh, in, in history or whatever. But, but there was a, a really interesting dedicated community of artists like playing around with blockchains and what it meant to make things using the NFT kind of, uh, uh, I guess standards, but also doing other things like using other um, other types of blockchain uh, arrangements. So, for example, there was a, a group around 2017-18 called Terra Zero who were experimenting with an art project where you uh, had um, uh, a, a proposition to have forests own themselves 
and use smart contracts to legally make a forest um, a, a, a legal entity that could own itself, employ everybody that kept it running as people, but then accrue the value to, uh, to, to the title of the forest itself. And, 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 you know, these types of things using blockchain infrastructure um, to, to make artwork that, um, that otherwise couldn't happen in another space, but is kind of nothing to do with, uh, you know, what happened in a, in a people signal moment. And there was a community that was consuming that, critiquing it, but the liquidity was low. And then I think running up until the people moment um, uh, and after DeFi, that's the story I was always told, right? DeFi and stable coins made uh, liquidity in the space, uh, especially in the Ethereum space, like a lot more, there was a lot more money going around at a certain period and then uh, throwing money at uh, assets um, that was an experiment in kind of uh, making different forms of asset holdings uh, was then, uh, you know, became something that was uh, a bit of a meme in the space. And then the people signal kind of like beams that uh, even further and and artists and collectors kind of in a different way. I think that's true. But I guess my point is that it seems to me that the art market has discovered that there's a, a large liquidity pool in crypto and not so much that traditional art collectors like what Steve Martin or something like that are uh, suddenly buying NFTs. Uh, you know, so that's true. Yeah, at the moment, they're still very separate worlds. Also, I know that from selling my own thing. Right? So I'll make an NFT project like .com Seance. The you know, 400 plus people or 400 plus wallets hold those 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 NFTs, right? Uh, and I think of the kind of art world collector, there's probably maybe 50 of those of them or 20 even, like a very small percentage. And they're not particularly attuned to those launches and those signals. I have, I have a mascot to answer that mascot, actually. Uh, this is a Damien Hurst panda. This is a uh, this is a pets.com <laughs> beanie baby. So um, that's uh, wait. We... You gotta put it right. <laughs> there you go. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But this yeah. is a Dam this is a Damien Hurst panda, uh, Simon. Yeah, but this is a Simon Denny. Uh, yeah, like, uh, beanie baby. Wait, 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 wait. When you say it's, when you say it's a Damien Hurst, is it actually a Damien Hurst, or are you just being ironic? I mean, have you seen the sharks? No, I don't know about the sharks. Oh, the sharks matter. The, you'll get it. Go look at the Damien Hurst sharks. Oh, is that the thing well, that oh, yeah, Damien Hurst known for? In formaldehyde, those ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, all right. Oh, I see. So it's a joke, but that is a legitimate pets.com beanie baby that was commissioned for your project. Uh, no, that's a real. That's a, that's just one. <laughs> that's, of that's a real thing. thing. Oh, that's <laughs> actually it's from. That's like a it's actually, collectible. It's real merch. Yeah, I'm a. I don't I'm know a that merch. it's collectible, <laughs> but it's yeah, certainly I, real. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a beautiful thing, and you know he's holding this amazing little uh, pets.com mic, which I could also yeah, use. I see that. I'm Th that, that, will, really... that will never be that will never be remembered. But I guess you know what? I'm very honestly... stressed at how quickly you two were able to like find mascots within your like, reach. <laughs> like I would have to go and dig around for a little bit. I'll, 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 <laughs> I've got um, a number of things. This is my your house. Then. <laughs> your house is bigger you have more space to store it me it's like it's like right over there <laughs> like um, next to my bed <laughs> in my studio but um, um but, but 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 the pet store so, so the, the beanies so just that that one that you have josh how much does that cost this one here yeah how much did you buy it for? in 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 this mint condition yeah uh you know as i look at it uh, something uh, it's made by tie.com back in the 90s uh, this is a beautiful example of a Beanie Baby that people would want. Uh, it's this not the beautiful, channel. 
<laughs> this beautiful Peking uh, panda named Peking would sell for somewhere between maybe four and six hundred dollars on a good day if it went to auction. Cheap. Cheap is right. That's why I collect beanies. Yeah. And what is the what what's the sort of appreciation like? What's the best appreciation of a beanie baby? They don't appreciate. They just go down. Yeah. That's that's why I like I buy them now. Although Simon, we should encase one of these in acrylic and uh, and and make a joke about. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'm just saying there's definitely something happening here between BB Babies and MyPets.com beanies. There's a conversation there to be had. Well, but let's talk about the market the as it is now, because like, for, um, the reality is, like, my my crypto skeptic audience would point out is that there has been a massive crash. A lot yeah. of people invested in it. A lot of young, naive people um, who thought it, the market only went up invested. Presumably, regulators are sniffing around. Have you like? Do you perceive that? Do you? What, what's your perception as someone who's been watching this market for a while? Is there concern that you know it's going to get overregulated? Is there um, you know what? How do you uh, justify um, you know the you know talking up this market when so many people have been hurt? Is that a question for me? Uh, yeah. Oh, or just well, yeah, I mean, anti anti NFT. So um, I'm not anti NFT. I am not anti NFT. I don't. I don't want well, to so I mean, out there. Maybe I should just qualify again, like where I come from and my interest, right? I I think it's a very interesting new design space for artists to do interesting kind of like shared ownership projects that also play around with the idea of value, right? So I think that as a as a design space for conceptually focused artists is a very new and very interesting thing, and I am a fan of projects that like push the design possibilities of that space, right? And it makes it more interesting and more real, the fact that there has this kind of speculative asset part of it, which is also always part of any art market, you know, whether you like it or not. Uh, you know, paintings uh, certainly in the modern period have always been objects of speculation and continue to hold a lot of value and, you know, behave a little bit like dogs, et cetera. Um, and so I think that, uh, I think that it's a natural extension of that type of mechanism, which is so prevalent in like the art world anyway. So this is this is why I'm interested in it. This is what I'm I, I claim to be interesting. And all of the things that are dangerous about that are also dangerous uh, of just about being an artist in general. It's a very volatile market that you can be hot one day and worth nothing the next day. It's a really crazy space and and sort of uh, in some ways at the kind of blazing edges of, of capitalism or something like that. And I think that's also what makes it like culturally compelling to, to, to be a part of and, and look at it from. So I acknowledge all of those problems that you mentioned. And I acknowledge the fact that there's like really awful stories that happen uh, in the crypto space about people who are naive, losing a lot of uh, you know money, but also time and, and, and all these things and, and becoming kind of unstable. Unfortunately, it's also a very common thing in the arts in general so um yeah uh, that would be my my relationship because isn't it the case that um the whole boom in like nfts and art has kind of coincided with a lot more regulation in the art dealer space so like i think 2021 was the year kyc and aml came in to the market at least in europe i don't know about the rest of the world but in the uk as far as yeah. i know because up until then, it was a fairly um, kind of discretionary situation, right? Whereas now there's actual oversight yeah. from a refugee standpoint. Is that coincidental? I mean, I think, 
Yes and no, and I also would qualify that. I think that probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that probably uh, applies a great deal more to the secondary market than it does to the primary market. And like as an artist, I'm I'm mostly interacting with the primary market, right? I have I have a secondary career, um, which is you know smaller than many, but like it's uh, and it's something that one interacts with eventually as an artist. But um, but you know, uh, primary sales are also still pretty pretty cowboy, uh, I would say, in in a lot of cases, and there are ways to avoid some of those scrutinies uh, in various different jurisdictions which is one of the reasons why some of the biggest art fairs for example are in switzerland you know so it's uh and hong kong uh etc because there are also three ports that hold the assets in those international zones where taxes are as you know more flexible and and, and these other things from the financial industry so um so yes i there, there might be a correlation between kyc and the secondary market and uh and and kind of regulation happening and a move to crypto but i don't know that that my my feeling is maybe coinciding with what Josh implied before is that I think that the audience generally and the kind of main money behind investing in NFTs as artwork is not really migrating from the art world proper. It's more coming from people who are um, liquid in crypto, adventurous, and have money to spend and and, and pass around on risky fun things. And 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 I think that goes along with my actual position on NFTs, which is uh, NFTs are collectibles and invest ironically right right only only ironically if you're if you're very serious about this and you're throwing in like your uh your dinner money uh then i get i get the i get the schadenfreude vibes i kind of just like enjoy watching that crash it's very funny to me well another value proposition for you both which is maybe less monetary but all go to things that you think are innovative and interesting which are cheap which is actually in the nft space like really possible you know like some of the most interesting work in terms of pushing the design limits and kind of creating interesting cultural shudders across uh ways of making art are happening in places where things are really really cheap and certainly cheap compared to where that type of activity happens in the in the normal contemporary art world right so my nft collection you know, whatever it is, uh, I say has a lot of masterpieces in it from, uh, you know, early experiments in, in really interesting things that at the moment don't have that much um, uh, financial value and they may never have that much financial value. But it's uh, but it's a it's a vital place of uh, culture happening now that I can participate in in a really exciting way, which I can't do with a lot of even like young art straight out of, out of art school because it, it already goes to quite a high price pretty quickly. It's, it's kind of remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's a generational clash here for sure. And so my position on net NFTs is actually quite nuanced as well, because, you know, I, I, as I've said, you know, many times now, I've made a concession versus my very hypercritical position on Bitcoin. Like, I do think there is I have finally kind of seen the um, the light in terms of like what problem it solves. And I think the decentralization side of it is is really very important the censorship resistance side of it but um but i'm still very critical of all the kind of scamming stuff i kind of think it's kind of a function of the human condition and that it's not necessarily the fault of the technology the technology is neutral and and it's just human nature that does this but with nfts i am inclined to be a bit open-minded because i i see it as a generational shift but also because there's a clear value in digital art so when you know when you see yeah. um you know when my daughter does a picture on her ipad 
that means something to me. That's like she drew a smurf. That's good. I really like it. Doesn't yeah. like that is a, a legitimate form of expression in digital uh, media, which otherwise gets vaporized. Is it any more or less meaningful than, say, hanging a picture on the wall? Well, for me, I, I, I see the value in that. Now, the fact that the NFT then just attaches a mechanism by which you can express value uh, for a digital piece of art um, is a there are many problems in it and i think there's the legal situation hasn't caught up with with the with the technology and there are definitely ways around it and i'm not convinced the technology is infallible and and i'm very cynical and skeptical of, of some of the stuff i'm told about it but there's definitely something in it and i think in the future when you see these kids you know i'm i'm not a gamer i don't game but when you look at you know the value they attribute to like mummy mummy please i need that digital like Barbie thing in right. my iPad, the in-app economy or whatever, there is a value to it, and there is a differentiation in the aesthetics that are being swapped. And I, Isabella, yeah. though, is it is it possible? And this, this is the Simon too. Like I think a lot about this, a lot. And my issue with the NFT market is that there is no connection between the receipt you get on blockchain and the art itself, right? Well, so I don't. On Though, right like it, it i mean what about on-chain nfts let's say you know, yeah so yeah the, they, they do have like NFT, which is just a link to a, a, a web2 url that is then you can swap it, change it out I think yeah. made a piece that this is the problem that yeah, was people but, right people was that you're, you're correct though there are on-chain nfts but like generally those yeah, are like any of them and it's an interesting random. design space and as as things like the merge happen and as potential capacity grows then uh you can you can do that Oh no, no, no! You won't. Wait, be wait, 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 wait! I'm here to like be ignorant, so and ask ignorant questions. What is an on-chain NFT? They're they're NFTs that actually exist on the on the blockchain. So NFTs don't exist on the blockchain. The receipt does, right? I, yeah. So when I think I have a, I think I have a simpler explanation, right? Sure. Like, so uh, because I I answer this question quite a lot, so it's like. Uh, Blockchain is a ledger, right? It's a, it's a spreadsheet and, and a certain number of key characters fit in the chain that actually goes in the real blockchain that is the real ledger. And um, other things are pointed to from that position, right? Like you have a, a web link inside that uh, chain of code that points somewhere off the blockchain. And what Josh is saying is like the majority of entities are JPEGs that sit outside on some normal server or, or even decentralized service uh, like IPFS. Um, that are not actually written into the chain that's on the code. And so therefore, when you buy the thing, it's, it's more the receipt that you're buying that points to the actual object rather than the actual artwork itself, right? But then there's a whole design space that uses that tiny little bit that you can actually put in the ledger entry as the design space for the NFT. And there are ways to kind of uh, design for that and augment that in really interesting ways. And as, uh, as, as blockchains grow, maybe as proof of stake and, and the merge happens as well, that design space might become larger and, uh, and there might be all sorts of other things. But right now there's a huge variety of things that are really just made inside the medium on chain, which, uh, which, can, which can claim to be more valuable. I will right. challenge that again, because um, I actually think that uh, a receipt that points to something and that whole ecosystem is still still valid and still interesting, and I like lots of you know things that are, are not on chain as artwork that have other things that NFTs can only do, which is, for example, have a community of people all tied into one asset. Well, well so this is this what I was this is where I was going, Simon. Like, and, yeah. and even the on chain stuff. The reason the on chain stuff is fairly uninteresting to me is as well, is because 
the it's purported ownership, right? Like it's like I own this thing. It's like okay, right click save. Now I own it too. Well, my yours isn't on chain. Yours is on your computer. Like okay, so, but yeah, like the the reality the rea- like the reality is as I see it, we have these incredibly trusted organizations like Christie's and Sotheby's and such uh, that could literally put together a their own blockchain slash database that does this with digital art and basically shows you who owns like what is the provenance of like a digital piece so that people could continue to to bid on these things and i I would find that far more legitimate than uh this sort of blockchain ownership type so you want a gatekeeper you want a gatekeeper keeping i think it only makes i think it only makes sense with the gatekeeper i don't care about the quality part of it i think that they could do it with no with no quality they could call it the sotheby's blockchain but I think that I think that the art market only makes sense with a gatekeeper because, like, then uh, you know, it just it yeah, it doesn't it doesn't the, everything the blockchain you're part saying, doesn't the blockchain thing apply to money and banks? Are you, are you not just like isn't aren't you undermining your argument again like for Bitcoin by saying that? No, because the arguments for money and and art are very different. Like I wouldn't you know I would like I I I don't think you can make Beanie Babies in a decentralized way. I think those require Ty Warner. You know. Not everything can be decentralized. It, it's it's this like buzzword that we use for everything, and I don't I don't I'm not sure that I necessarily want there to be a gatekeeper, uh, but what I do think is that to me that is more interesting than this sort of notional like receipt that that someone's picked a pointer to, okay. like a JPEG. I can push that back on that a good, little. That makes sense. Yeah, I can push back on that a little, and that like. I don't think Sotheby's is incentivized to build that space, right? And I don't think Sotheby's, Sotheby's or, or Christie's is incentivized to build the design space that is something like Ethereum. Um, and therefore, it, the type of art that I think is really valuable culturally and is some, in some cases valuable also financially now at least, um, uh, that has emerged through that kind of uh, uh, system where there isn't a gatekeeper, where it's come from a particular type of community, where access is slightly different than entering into the art market through art schools and these types of things. I think all of that stuff that's happened is uh, is really amazing and interesting. Um, and and Sotheby's or Christie's could have never built the design space that would have prompted that, right? So so I think just in terms of the different types of culture and people, not people at the top of the chain of everything, always saying what's valuable and what isn't, that often come from a similar background, that often come from a similar school system, that often all know each other. Like if that's, you know, I, I think that one of the cool things about NFTs is it's opened up the possibility of, of claiming, making art and, and, and playing with value and playing with community in this other way that would have never come from the center well, of the that, art world that I know. You know. That is in, it is interesting too. This is something that I I mean, uh, maybe this undermines my point, Isabella. I've I've realized one thing that that is sort of interesting, which is that the art market is a bit un, uncontrolled, which I guess is what you want in art. And Sotheby's and uh and Christie's, they they really are responding to the artists in the art market. Like when this NFT thing started, I emailed, uh, I think it was someone at Christie's, I believe, or maybe it was Sotheby's, I think it was Christie's. And I tried to get them to sell one of the original Rare Pepe's. I showed them the picture of it and the email I got back was like, <laughs> like no. <laughs> yeah, but there's a high then, amount of quality to that that has then, already existed that they just couldn't see. Right. And the then time. a few a few months later, they were like, we may be selling a rare Pepe. And yeah, I was just exactly. like, oh, yeah. Exactly. It, by the way, by the, the way, the funny thing about that, the person who tweeted it was the person that I originally offered mine to. There you go. 
There you go. But they, they respond to it, right? They're reactive. To value that's been taken some that's been created somewhere else, they just kind of capitalize on all the production that happened around that cultural value. And I would argue that red pepes are a very special thing, which should be valuable because it reflects a particular moment in time and a particular emergent set of concerns, values, aesthetics, all of these things which art does really well, you know. And and the fact that they're reactive and they follow that and there was already a value in the community before there was a value in an auction house is exactly what happens in the normal art market as well. A little group of people working somewhere will create something really interesting and exciting. And first it'll be valuable to their friends and then it'll be valuable to some business people who also want to market it and grow it and make it a bit more scale, a bit more reach. And then eventually the secondary market comes in and there's a there's a whole you know other tier of markets on on, on only the Uber Rich can participate in. So yeah, that, I think that, there's a that lot is... of that. That is the story of the Beanie Baby. I mean, that's the story of right. all collectibles. And I, I think I do think that it's interesting because there are most collectibles are transient and, um, you know, temporary, temporal and art and, you know, tennis shoes and stuff have seemed to kind of transcend, like buck that trend a little bit where yeah. they're not as temporal and transient. They've you know been popular for 30 years or 40 years. I mean, I guess art is somewhat newly very expensive. Um, but his Contemporary art is really very expensive. Old art, oh look, there's the Matchbook collection. Old art is, uh, you know, older art has been valuable and expensive to produce, to maintain, to, you know, to, to pass on for a long time. Oh, it's yes. Oh, yes. Lots of different spheres. So I think the value of cultural objects um, and, and that are seen to be resonant with something that's really important, uh, there's always been some kind of quote-unquote market there if you want to frame it. Oh, I love the Burger King ones. That's really amazing. This, this is the thing. It's so eye of the beholder. I have this like insane match, match like load. This is just one. I've, I've got bags of this stuff. My mum used to collect matches at any free matches at any restaurant or anywhere she went to. So I've got all the and and like from an arts point, like some of them are really interesting, you know. So it is so like, is there a market for a like? Remember when you could smoke on planes? You could smoke on Concord, yeah. and they gave That's you matches. Amazing. Concord, oh my right? god! How many of those do you have? That's so beautiful. Yeah. It's cool, I remember, it? you know, it's it's interesting with the smoking on planes because, like, you know, Simon, the, the thing about Bitcoin generally or crypto is we've now had it for 10 years. Yeah. And the kids that, you know, when you're five, let's say you don't remember anything for, you know, four or five years. But then like so there are kids today who were born and basically feel like crypto has been around their entire life. Yeah, sure. And I mean. Like yeah, and, and I think that's I think that's a really interesting sort of world to be entering. I think that's yeah. something that like a lot of these adults who rejected the uh, benefits of crypto never saw coming because they didn't think it would be here long enough. So we live in a world now where like a majority of you know like just the majority of people very soon will be in a world where they think Bitcoin or you know any of these cryptos that have you know Litecoin whatever have existed since they were born. And I, I yeah. think that's a really interesting thing. Super interesting. And it's interesting culturally, right? And this is, again, making that claim for, for cultural space and, and, and viewing it through a cultural lens as, as interesting and, and obviously connected to like money and politics and all these other things that Bitcoin touches well, it, as well. And if it fails, like it's a, it's a center, it's a touch point in their life. It's yeah. an important thing that existed their entire life that they right. didn't know had a beginning which is, right. I think, kind of what's interesting about like the beginning. You really don't understand that certain things have a beginning. So if you exactly. were born post-internet, the, the idea that there was a world before the internet is like exactly. me thinking about yeah. a world with no cars, you know. And, exactly. 
And that's really interesting because like if this whole project fails, then we have all of these people who literally don't know that it just got here. Right. It's been and that around long enough for them to not have just gotten here. Right. And it's naturalized as like a, as a, as a part of the value environment, a, a part of the things that express value in the world, which I think is like really interesting culturally. Yeah. It, it, it is. I mean, it's all, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I like art. I'm, I did art for foundations. So for me, this is all very cool. But I think, um, how do you convince, like, you know, the, the financial market that this is a serious um, domain? Because I, I, I still, I think a lot of people watching this who come from sort of TradFi are still mm. not sold on the idea. Mm. It doesn't matter, I mean, Maybe that's not my role, right? Like, I guess you know. Like, so I, I can claim inherent cultural value and uh, and 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 call that a a, a, a value space and say that a, an object can or, or or a digital object can hold that can be a store of that value and that should have a financial expression. But on that, like, uh, you know, the the claim that it, it can and will forever. I mean, uh, you know, I I will always value art. I will always value art that's made in interesting design spaces that reflects the contemporary world. I think that that should have financial value, but I guess that's not necessarily enough for your. What do you think would be a better argument for the value of it, Isabella? I, I don't. I. I mean, it's. I just think society needs something to express ideal, like aesthetic values that are a function of the human condition at that particular moment in time. I think it's. Yeah. It's that's uh, fundamentally global, right? Yeah, and it's it's hard to define. That's kind of the whole point. Like, if you can, you can't. You're, you're not supposed to be able to answer the question, "What is art?" Because that's kind of part of the mystery. And um, but I yeah. also think I think I think it's also about movements and cultural kind of trends and and ideological wars. And I think in a, you know, I found it quite interesting, like bringing it back to like news. Um, you know, apparently ISIS are like behind, like getting into NFTs. And I find that really interesting because I see NFT as a sort of there's a dimension of like online marketing and or um, advertising to it. It's like an attention economy thing. So for me, I think one of the functions that is under underappreciated in the NFT thing is that you it's not just about owning the asset. It's about, well, if you if you are a say like a one of these billionaires who wants to push their like, you know, socioeconomic ideology on on the on the on the nation the world whatever you bid up like the bored ape right it's going to encourage copycatting of bored apes and so suddenly because they're fetching a big amount of money like rather than having to spend like on digital marketing you create a movement that replicates the aesthetic that you believe like like in the renaissance or whatever like you yeah. you replicate the aesthetic that you have an attached cultural values to so i could like if I'm a Christian, I might like bid up a a bored saint uh, series instead, right? To try and like Isabella, do you know do you know about the board ape board ape copy cats? Ryan's yeah. project. Oh, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah, there's literally it's it's being litigated right now because everyone is I and mean, this is again rare Pepe living out itself in real life. Um Rare Pepe had this idea that you had gatekeepers called the uh you know, they were, they were lab operators who would test the Pepe's and figure out if they were legitimate. And if they rejected the Pepe, it was a fake rare, a fake rare Pepe. Uh, even though it was the, it's, it's just, the whole thing was a, a, a joke, but also somewhat serious. 
Um, so they have the fake rares, and now there's an entire project called the fake rare. It's rare as fuck, rare AF project. So Board Ape followed the same sort of thing where they had the Board Apes, and now there's a guy who's being sued for basically coming out with his own Board Apes. <laughs> like, I basically yeah, there's an interesting other backstory to that because that actually comes from art. So Ryder Rips, who's the artist who did this, it's coming from yep. kind of my art tradition, my art world. And he did these Ryder Rips uh, collection of board apes where he literally just uh, used the same JPEGs and made uh, made a, a, a second version of the collection, sold them, which I think is a really important thing too. They had to enter a market, right? So he sold all of them for like 0.1 or something like that. And then you had a, a Ryder Rips board ape. And they were, you know, every, every single board ape was doubled, right? And then he also w went out there and spoke the message about appropriation art, things, you know, come from art, history gestures that come from Warhol and, 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 and Duchamp and, you know, these, these types of histories as, of copies as art, the gesture of copying as a cultural form, you know, and also of uh, affirmation as a, as a cultural gesture, et cetera. And that clashed with the original culture, like the culture of originals that has kind of emerged around NFT. So it's a very interesting insertion and a very art world kind of conceptual art move um, but that has but a really amazing play out. They're fake rares. They're fake rares, which is great. I just, I absolutely yeah. loved watching I it happen. I just thought, I saw, Cindy, you know, I saw all these other, I saw, I saw Warhol in that move, right? I saw, you know, I saw these other valuable moves that had happened within the canon of contemporary art and conceptual art, which I'm so invested in, played out in this other design space. And I was like, wow, that's really a very clever move from writer, you know. And he did it really well because a lot of people who who have no idea of that history engaged in exactly those ideas, which are really interesting and important, and that kind of a position like a Warhol stands for, right? So I think it was a very smart insertion, also financially and, and now, now legally, very, very interesting. Well, also copyright law probably allows for that as well, which I think is well, copyright is fine. It's actually, it was trademark infringement, not copyright law that the suit is, which is also an interesting distinction, right? So he's not being sued for using those images and replicating them. He's being sued for potentially posing as and tricking a board ape to think that you're the board oh. ape producer. That's oh, okay. The, that's so it was brand confusion. Yeah, exactly, and that's apparently easier to um, sue for than. You know, because uh, you can, you know, I as an artist have taken lots of images I appropriate all the time. It's a, it's of the uh, language of conceptual art. You know, Warhol famously made pictures of portraits of, of people that from other photographs that already existed, etc. And um, it's very hard to sue for that because uh, you can always say that, that there's great kind of laws that keep a possibility. Sh Shepard, Shepard Ferry and Obama. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All yeah. the, all those things, but also they're legally protected in that you can do a parody legally. You can do, uh, you know, you can do satire legally. You can do collage legally. All of these things are possible in terms of copyright of image, but in terms of posing as a brand and 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 uh, and getting fraudulent sales based on somebody thinking that you're the real uh, boy, that's the thing that is easier to sue for, and that's how they're doing it, which is clear on the legal side. I imagine that's they'll have really to find, they'll that's have to really find somebody who is damaged by that or something. I would imagine, but that's that's interesting. No, but yeah. it, but. It it is really interesting because I think the copyright thing is incredibly hard to execute. Yeah. Where I think when I speak to artists and people pushing NFTs, often, you know, I, I keep hearing, oh, well, it's they, 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 they confuse it as copyright protection. And I think there is that misperception in, in the market. But the trademark idea is very different. And, and that yeah. makes sense to me. Um, yeah. But there has to be something that allows for replication of, of like copyright has to be a measured concept because 
otherwise you can't create. I mean, you have like exactly. derivatives, derivatives that have to be permitted because, yeah, because at the moment, like what, for example, like yeah, I'm but, but, but is it, Isabella, with, the thing, the thing with the rip, the writer rips thing is that they're not like the the commentary is interesting because the point of it is that these these are not derivatives; they're direct, literal copies of the original yeah, thing, and that's which which uh, is commentary on the fact that the art is the receipt. Right, exactly. Right. It's commentary on that, but it also vibes with other conversations around what's an original thing, right? So in the in the appropriation art discourse, you know, you, you can't produce the same thing twice. Because if I paint a picture uh, 10 years later uh, that, that is exactly visually a copy of another person in another part of the world who comes from a different social background's picture, that's not the same cultural gesture. So therefore, it's it's you cannot produce the same thing again and again. You know, and, and actually those nuances in context, those differences in context are the really interesting thing, right? So there's, there's there's so many layers to the project, which I think is really, really interesting. And I think, you know, Clug, uh, somebody out there uh, in the in the ape world, I think that they would do so much better to just let him be a part of expanding that universe because to me that's more Web3, right? It's like it's saying they've already got a lot of value from that project and now here's somebody inventing another angle to get a different type of value from it. And and that is my, that is my vision of what a, what a web three art world should look like, you know. And and that's what's cool about NFTs. You can get value from owning something, from building a network that creates value. But the parasitic and kind of like responsive projects um, are, are added value rather than taking away, you know. And that's what's cool. potentially cool about the design space. Projects like Loot are, are a great example of that, right? I don't know if you guys know about this NFT. It was a very famous one when it came out midway through last year. So um, it was just a list of words on a black square that was on chain actually and it was describing objects so it was like a spear a cape a, a booklet something like that it was a list of things that one might have in a game let's say and then that sold out that collection sold out very quickly and then people started to make derivative collections so they made images of those objects they made potential games that used those objects and that spawned this whole other kind of decentralized way of um of making uh kind of cultural assets what started with this prompt so that so the original piece is actually a prompt and i think that's a really amazing design space that only happens in a kind of uh, a web free type art world and that's exactly the thing that um a project like board should be supporting you know it's not a threat it's it actually it actually brings more value to their brand you know because i would never have bought an ape but i was really excited to buy a writer writer rips board ape because it vibed with my interests right and it was another take on the space but you were very confused. You thought that they were original board apes, right? No, I bought them because I knew <laughs> it's like going buying Shenzai t-shirts, which are like Coca-Cola, but backwards or whatever, you know? Sorry, you, I was trying to help you. <laughs> I do think it's interesting because I see, I, I do see that like there's a lot of discussion that is happening that is sort of exterior to the NFT space. Stuff that I'm interested in, like I'm very interested in copyright law. I, uh, yeah. I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in watching lawyers parse through like the board apes uh, terms and conditions, and trying to figure out whether the board apes holders actually have copyright or not. Yeah, uh, that's a hot debated topic right now in law. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of so beautiful. Like, the legal yeah. Document the images and it. it's like amazing you know i've made art out of documents because i think those things are always so incredibly uh, beautiful but that one's a really amazing one 
If you <laughs> like, if you NFT the document as art, uh, oh, that's and done. You attach, that's been done. And you, and, but, and you yeah. attach a terms and conditions to the document. Which one is the equivalent? <laughs> exactly. You know, and that's what <laughs> should be occurring, right? This is, this is an amazing conversation, which questions value, which widens the community, like all of that. You know, it's it's a it's a value add beyond. You can't uh, you can't copyright legal documents, but if you NFT a document, a legal document as art, then is it copyright? Copyrighted. I so I make sculptures out of patents, which is uh, which is a really uh, a, a thing that dabbles in this direction as well, right? So I take a patent design um, and I make a, a you know a, a version of that object, and then that's an art object, and then I also make literal collages from the patent itself. So also, oh, that's you know, right, yeah, <laughs> you've done that before. That's true. Yeah, it's a, it's a great space. Yeah. What do you what do you guys? Because I know you're running, um, you have to run soon. Uh, what do you think of the? Um, you know, the music uh, application. Is there an NFT music application? Yeah. And how, yeah. how does that fit into the conversation? So th there's a lot of music type things. And I mean, one of the, as you know, one of the problems with streaming is that for primary producers, uh, you know, making new work is not as valuable as it used to be under a streaming model, right? So I can stream uh, a Leonard Cohen album uh, from 50 years ago, a hundred times, and it's the same revenue for the, um, but you know, for the for the for the people who own the copyright, for the people who are getting rid of you of it, as as it would be for a new album, right? So why produce new albums when we can just listen to, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Beatles uh, forever and ever, right? Um, so uh, so so the funding to produce new culture has gone down in the streaming uh, context. So web three models are really popular in in the emergent uh, uh, space, and the idea that you can for example, um, uh, you know, produce an NFT collection that has snippets of uh, sound on it and you can own part of it and then make collages using various parts of the NFTs. I've seen that experiment happen. Um, a, a group called Amnesia Scanner did that. But also the idea that you can kind of, uh, you know, crowdfund things and own parts of, uh, of future uh, revenue from uh from musical projects is also being experimented in NFTs. So I, I think it's a it's a really important space for music. Because what I think is would be interesting is like when I do these podcasts, uh, these leaked lunch podcasts, and I do them in a restaurant. I mean, it's obviously it's original content. It's me interviewing someone. But if the restaurant plays any background music, if I was to put it on YouTube, I'd get like some sort of, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to monetize my content because there would be a copyright claim on it. And that really annoys me because it's like it's part of life. Like when you hear the music out and about in reality, it's it's fabric of life. Right. Right. And if there was only a way like that, if we could only Just have seamlessly. Yeah. strip out the new content from the old content and so that you don't get penalized for having like absorbed like this pre-existing piece of art into your new thing. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, here, here's a Web3 idea, right? Like, what if that was then, what if that was some sort of asset that floated around and the, the thing that now identifies that content and asks you to take it down could instead, in an automated way, just take a fee, like a streaming fee would be, just because it's in the background. So it just takes an XYZ low fee, it's in the background, they've, 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 they've heard it, it's, it's pre-approved, and you just pay a tiny little fraction of something, and then you can use so, it, you know? So Simon, not, not really a Web3 idea, YouTube does that. 
YouTube's been doing that for years. There you go. Well, <laughs> if you, and yeah, well, it's not your use case, though, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's it's a less, uh, it's a, yeah. So, so, so Isabella, YouTube uh, often will do this if there's music or if someone else claims like there's there's a way, for example, that you can claim copyright on someone else's channel. Yeah, say and someone did not remind me. Well, wait, they'll, they'll say that this this video is copyrighted by X. They don't mind you having it there, but now the revenues are going to go to them. So yeah, but that's different to what Simon's saying. Simon's saying it, rather than like giving up all the revenue from the advertising to the copyright claim. Uh, oh, I understand. My, my point is that it's just a degree. It's an automated they could, just tiny say, they, they could yeah. literally just say part of the revenues, but like, I'm just saying that it already, like that's exactly what YouTube does right now. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, but the innovation here is being able to like not deprive me and my original content that sits on top of like some tiny smidgen. I, of. I, I, under, I understand. I'm saying that's not an innovation. That's just a choice. Like it literally is an aesthetic choice that YouTube is making, right? YouTube is choosing to not like, for example, one of the things that is really problematic in social media is the way in which they manage copyright. Because copyright is something that you literally go to court to decide whether you have. And then when you get to court, you decide, like you have to argue whether your copyright is valid. And then you have to argue whether like someone actually infringed on it in the way, you know, did you in fact do a work for hire? Did you file it correctly? Did this person so actually infringe? Problem. Say it again. It's a problem of the centralization of authority and the dominance of a single platform to just execute whatever rules they prefer. That is, in fact, yeah. So YouTube is, in fact, well, I mean that, but that's that's still not that they would still have to choose to build in a different authority, authority like a different authority structure, right? They would still so have to choose to. Probably, it's it's almost certainly a political problem, Simon, because like right. I think I think what's going on with YouTube and these other platforms is they're desperately trying to hold on to like certain legal, uh, like statuses that they have and i don't think web3 necessarily does that and i think for some reason they have elected themselves the arbiters of like pre-trial motions and such which is really interesting like they they yeah. allow you to claim copyright and there's no necessary uh there, there's there's no ability for you to go like this is derivative this is whatever mm -hmm. like this is legal for me to do but if it, but what if we had a new design space where a more decentralized world was being built where some of these options could be debated and a different narrative could be created and therefore a different political world could be created? This is the opportunity of, of something emergent like Web3, right? Where you can say, we need a different world because it behaves like this one. We have different infrastructure, which may or may not be an innovation in this way or that way. But what we do have is a will to behave in a different way and a different design space that allows for kind of different sorts of governance, right? That's the, that's the value proposition that could be uh, built on. Yeah, I, I tend to think. I mean, like we'll we'll see in the future, Simon. But I tend course, to, I tend to think I tend to think that most cultural values or most values and uh, desires either revert back to the to where they were or the mean, and uh, and that most of those types of things are enforced culturally. So, like, yeah, I think you so need a culture shift. Oh, very important. Yeah. I think that I think arts are important. important. And I, I, I do. I do think there's a huge amount of value in art, and I like. I think art. You know, like Isabella asked, what art is. I tend to say to people that art is commentary. I think that it's extremely important. But I, I just think that, like, um, the idea, the like, I think art opens people's minds and gives them like the ability to see new possibilities. I don't know if I would say what it does is is innovate, right? I don't necessarily think that there's generally innovation so much in. Uh, in art, uh, apart from like it innovating art itself, which I think but is can you not have, uh, 
but can you not have visual and narrative and community innovation? And I think all of yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. And and, and, and then it always goes to like like what is art? Is invention art? You know, like it, what well, is Le art? Leonardo so. da Vinci. Yeah, well, we don't those. we don't call his flying machines art, right? We call them yeah, inventions. You like those beautiful manuscripts where he died. I mean, that was kind of it, it was a, it was Leonardo da Vinci encapsulated everything. I'm with, right? I'm with you. I think that well, he was I'm a, fine with borders being blurred, right? I think it's okay to yeah, have yeah. something that's almost art, kind of art, has things that re resemble art. But I think what what is really important is that we have a cultural space to claim value. And I don't, I, you know, I think it I, has I agree to, with that. I think. I, I it has to go I, together with finance because that's how yes. we show care in the world, right? If, you, if something's not valuable, it's not cared for. If it, if it doesn't have a price on it, you can't afford to keep it. So I think uh, claiming a space to, to have financialized value also be tied to uh, cultural assets is important for the world that we live in. I, I agree. And, you know, like, the you know, what is Stravinsky's right of spring caused people to leave the theater and, and burn burn shit. And, uh, and I think... I think what's, you know, I, I, I try to put myself sometimes in a headspace that helps me to understand those people because I've never had that emotion. And it occurs to me that one of the one of the worlds in which artists are dealing with today is one where all art, everything feels like it's been seen. Right. Mm -hmm. So you think about like the Mona Lisa in, in the world where the Mona Lisa was produced in order to go see the Mona Lisa or let's say uh, any Michelangelo work, you had to literally get into a carriage or walk thousands of miles to go see it. And even if someone in a newspaper wanted to produce it, they didn't have the daguerreotype, they didn't have anything. They had to literally like, they would, you'd have like your local artists like draw like their best rendition of the Mona Lisa or something like that. <laughs> so like you could only like kind of approximate what it might be. And I think that's really interesting that today, um, like back then the image of the Mona Lisa, you'd see it, you'd go back like, there's this amazing thing that I've, you know, seen this, this new, I, like an art that literally like almost perfectly reflects reality. It's amazing. And that would have been something that would have been the experience of a person who saw that, you know, when it was made. But today the experience of every 12 year old is that they know they could draw the Mona Lisa from memory because they've seen it their entire life in every book. And so I think of that as like, a really unique world in which we have not lived for about 50 years. We haven't, yeah. we have, we don't know what that's like. So the, I, I'm waiting, I'm right. waiting you for know. you, Simon, to produce something that causes people to go burn things. <laughs> it, it has been done. It can be done. And let's, <laughs> let's make a sculpture of your matchbook collection. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and you're, I, and our, I, and our I've been completely distracted by it because I've never actually bothered to look at them. And, um, First of all, it's very good for the winter of discontent because I have a lot of stuff to burn. But like some of these designs are like super cool, and my like I'm asking myself what what exactly was my mother up to? I mean, there are <laughs> interesting. I, I could trace. I could trace some very interesting. Like you know, I didn't realize this was like a definitive example of like her second life as some sort of showgirl or something. So anyway. we should. We got to do this in acrylic. Uh, it could be a Simon Denny piece, and then we'll sell it where all Beanie Babies are sold on eBay and yes. uh, watch everyone critique uh, how we've ruined the Beanie Baby, and it's worth Done. nothing. It'll it'll go for like $3. Done. <laughs> and burn those. Burn well, you're those. <laughs> you're muted. You're muted as well. No, I was, yeah, uh, until she gets back. Uh, Simon, I've, I really enjoyed your stuff, um, I, uh, but I'm, I'm still waiting for it. Yeah, I would love to. I'm still waiting for my uh, my little uh, crypto kitty miner. Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> did you, did you, you gave it to Craig Wright and then I know. And then, and then, and then I told him that I wanted one. He goes, well, I have to make one for you. And then I'm, yeah, I'm waiting. Isabella. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Simon's got to go now. So it's been absolutely super fun. Um, yeah, what, a what a great I'm, conversation. I'm looking forward to all the pieces of art we've inspired and then we can burn them with my matches. Um, in oh, I like style. it. In the style of that project that you talked about at Vaudeville. I enjoyed that. So thank you so much, Simon. Um, we'll see you soon. And, and thanks you for soon. being a friend of friend of the blind spot. So take care. Thank you very much.